Appendix 2 The Life of David Brainerd by John Stiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Appendix Containing Some Reflections and Observations in the Memoirs of Mr. Brainerd by President Evans. We have here opportunity, as I apprehend, in a very lively instance, to see the nature of true religion and the manner of its operation when exemplified in a high degree and powerful exercise. Particularly, it may be worthy to be observed how greatly Mr. Brainerd's religion differed from that of some pretenders to the experience of a clear work of saving conversion wrought on their hearts, who, depending and living on that, settle in a cold, careless, and carnal frame of mind, and in a neglect of thorough, earnest religion in the stated practice of it. Although his convictions and conversion were in all respects exceeding clear and very remarkable, yet how far was he from acting as though he thought he had got through his work when once he had obtained comfort and satisfaction of his interest in Christ and title to heaven? On the contrary, that work on his heart by which he was brought to this was with him evidently but the beginning of his work, his first entering on the great business of religion and the service of God, his first setting out in his race. His obtaining rest of soul in Christ, after earnest striving to enter in at the straight gate, and being violent to take the kingdom of heaven, he did not look upon as putting an end to any further occasion for striving and violence in religion. But these were continued still, and maintained constantly through all changes, to the very end of life. His work was not finished, nor his race ended, till life was ended agreeable to scripture representations of the Christian life. He continued pressing forward in a constant manner, forgetting the things that were behind, and reaching forth towards the things that were before. His pains and earnestness in the business of religion were rather increased than diminished after he had received comfort and satisfaction concerning the safety of his state. Those divine principles which after this he was actuated by of love to God and longings and thirstings after holiness, seemed to be more effectual to engage him to pains and activity in religion than fear of hell had been before. And as his conversion was not the end of his work or of the course of his diligence and strivings in religion, so neither was it the end of the work of the Spirit of God on his heart. But on the contrary, the beginning of that work, the beginning of his spiritual discoveries and holy views, the first dawning of the light, which thenceforward increased more and more, the beginning of his holy affections, his sorrow for sin, his love to God, his rejoicing in Christ Jesus, his longings after holiness. And the powerful operations of the Spirit of God in these things were carried on from the day of his conversion in a continued course to his dying day. His religious experiences, his admiration, his joy and praise and flowing affections did not only hold up to a considerable height for a few days, weeks, or months at first, while hope and comfort were new things with him, and then gradually dwindle and die away till they came to almost nothing, and so leave him without any sensible or remarkable experience of spiritual discoveries, or holy and divine affections for months altogether, as it is with many, who after the newness of things is over, soon come to that pass that it is again with them very much as it used to be before their supposed conversion. With respect to any present views of God's glory, of Christ's excellency, or of the beauty of divine things, and with respect to any present thirstings for God, or ardent outgoings of their souls after divine objects, 
but only now and then they have a comfortable reflection on things they have met with in times past, and are something affected with them, and so rest easy, thinking all things are well. They have had a good, clear work, and their state is safe, and they doubt not, but they shall go to heaven when they die. How far otherwise was it with Mr. Brainerd than it is with such persons? His experiences, instead of dying away, were evidently of an increasing nature. His first love and other holy affections, even at the beginning, were very great. But after months and years, it became much greater and more remarkable, and the spiritual exercises of his mind continued exceeding great, though not equally so at all times, yet usually so, without indulged remissness, and without habitual dwindling and dying away, even till his decease. They began in a time of general deadness all over the land, and were greatly increased in a time of general reviving of religion. And when religion decayed again, and a general deadness returned, his experiences were still kept up in their height, and his holy exercises maintained in their life and vigor, and so continued to be, in a general course, wherever he was, and whatever his circumstances were, among English and Indians, in company and alone, in towns and cities, and in the howling wilderness, in sickness and in health, living and dying. This is agreeable to scripture descriptions of true and right religion and of the Christian life. The change that was wrought in him at his conversion was agreeable to scripture representations of that change which is wrought in true conversion, a great change and an abiding change, rendering him a new man, a new creature, not only a change as to hope and comfort and an apprehension of his own good estate, and a transient change consisting in high flights of passing affections, but a change of nature, a change of the abiding habit and temper of his mind, nor a partial change merely in point of opinion or outward reformation, much less a change from one error to another, from one sin to another, but an universal change, both internal and external, as from corrupt and dangerous principles in religion, unto the belief of the truth, so from both the habits and ways of sin, unto universal holiness of heart and practice, from the power and service of Satan unto God. His religion did apparently and greatly differ from that of many high pretenders to religion, who are frequently actuated by vehement emotions of mind, and are carried on in a course of sudden and strong impressions, and supposed high illuminations and immediate discoveries, and at the same time are persons of a virulent zeal, not according to knowledge. His convictions preceding his conversion did not arise from any frightful impressions on his imagination, or any external images and ideas of fire and brimstone, a sword of vengeance drawn, a dark pit open, devils in terrible shapes, etc., strongly fixed in his mind. His sight of his own sinfulness did not consist in any imagination of a heap of loathsome material filthiness within him, nor did his sense of the hardness of his heart consist in any bodily feeling in his breast, something hard and heavy like a stone, nor in any imaginations whatever of such a nature. His first discovery of God, of Christ, at his conversion, was not any strong idea of any external glory or brightness, or majesty and beauty of countenance, or pleasant voice, nor was it any supposed immediate manifestation of God's love to him in particular, nor any imagination of Christ's smiling face, arms open, or words immediately spoken to him as by name, revealing Christ's love to him, either words of scripture or any other, 
but a manifestation of God's glory and the beauty of his nature as supremely excellent in itself, powerfully drawing and sweetly captivating the heart, bringing him to a hearty desire to exalt God, set him on the throne, and give him supreme honor and glory as the king and sovereign of the universe, and also a new sense of the infinite wisdom, suitableness, and excellency of the way of salvation by Christ, powerfully engaging his whole soul to embrace this way of salvation and to delight in it. His first faith did not consist in believing that Christ loved him and died for him in particular. His first comfort was not from any secret suggestion of God's eternal love to him, or that God was reconciled to him, or intended great mercy for him. By any such texts as these, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven thee, fear not, I am thy God, etc., or in any such way. On the contrary, when God's glory was first discovered to him, it was without any thought of salvation as his own. His first experience of the sanctifying and comforting power of God's Spirit did not begin in some bodily sensation, any pleasant warm feeling in his breast, that he, as some others, called the feeling of the love of Christ in him, and being full of the Spirit. How exceeding far were his experiences at his first conversion from things of such a nature. And if we look through the whole series of his experiences, from his conversion to his death, we shall find none of this kind. I have had occasion to read his diary over and over, and very particularly and critically to review every passage in it, and I find no one instance of a strong impression on his imagination through his whole life, no instance of a strongly impressed idea of any external glory and brightness, of any bodily form and shape, any beautiful majestic countenance, no imaginary sight of Christ hanging on the cross with his blood streaming from his wounds, or seated in heaven on a bright throne with angels and saints bowing before him, or with a countenance smiling on him, or arms open to embrace him. No sight of heaven in his imagination with gates of pearl and golden streets and vast multitudes of glorious inhabitants with shining garments. No sight of the book of life opened with his name written in it. No hearing of the sweet music made by the songs of heavenly hosts. No hearing God or Christ immediately speaking to him, nor any sudden suggestions of words or sentences, either words of scripture or any other, as then immediately spoken or sent to him. No new objective revelations, no sudden strong suggestions of secret facts, nor do I find any one instance in all the records he has left of his own life, from beginning to end, of joy excited from a supposed immediate witness of the Spirit, or inward immediate suggestion that his state was surely good, that God loved him with an everlasting love, that Christ died for him in particular, and that heaven was his, either with or without a text of Scripture. No instance of comfort by a sudden bearing in upon his mind, as though at that very time directed by God to him in particular. Any such kind of texts as these, Fear not, I am with thee. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. I have called thee by name, thou art mine. Before thou wast formed in the belly, I knew thee, etc. No supposed communion and conversation with God carried on in this way, no such supposed tasting of the love of Christ. But the way he was satisfied of his own good estate, even to the entire abolishing of fear, was by feeling within himself the lively actings of a holy temper and heavenly disposition, the vigorous exercises of that divine love which cast out fear. This was the way he had full satisfaction soon after his conversion. See his diary on October 18th and 19th, 1740. And we find no other way of satisfaction through his whole life afterwards. 
and this he abundantly declared to be the way, the only way that he had complete satisfaction when he looked death in the face in its near approaches. Some of the pretenders to an immediate witness by suggestion and defenders of it with an assuming confidence would bear us in hand that there is no full assurance without it, and that the way of being satisfied by signs and arguing an interest in Christ from sanctification, if it will keep men quiet in life and health, yet will never do when they come to die. Then, they say, men must have immediate witness or else be in a dreadful uncertainty. But Mr. Brainerd's experience is a confutation of this. For in him we have an instance of one that possessed as constant and unshaken an assurance through the course of his life after conversion as perhaps can be produced in this age, which yet he obtained and enjoyed without any such sort of testimony and without all manner of appearance of it or pretense to it, yea, while utterly disclaiming any such thing and declaring against it, and one whose assurance we need not scruple to affirm, has as fair a claim and as just a pretension to truth and genuineness as any that the pretenders to immediate witness can produce, and not only an instance of one that had such an assurance in life, but had it in a constant manner in his last illness, and particularly in the latter stages of it, through those last months of his life, wherein death was more sensibly approaching without the least hope of life and had it too in its fullness, and in the height of its exercise, under those repeated trials that he had in this space of time, when brought from time to time to the very brink of the grave, expecting in a few minutes to be in eternity. He had the full assurance of hope unto the end. When on the verge of eternity he then declares his assurance to be such as perfectly secluded all fear, and not only so, but it manifestly filled his soul with exceeding joy, he declaring at the same time that this his consolation and good hope through grace arose wholly from the evidence he had of his good estate by what he found of his sanctification or the exercise of a holy heavenly temper of mind, supreme love to God, etc., and not in the least from any immediate witness by suggestion. Yea, he declares that at these very times he saw the awful delusion of that confidence which is built on such a foundation, as well as of the whole of that religion which it usually springs from, or at least is the attendant of, and that his soul abhorred these delusions, and he continued in this mind often expressing it with much solemnity, even till death. Mr. Brainerd's religion was not selfish and mercenary. His love to God was primarily and principally for the supreme excellency of his own nature, and not built on a preconceived notion that God loved him, had received him into favor, and had done great things for him, or promised great things to him. So his joy was joy in God and not in himself. We see by his diary how from time to time, through the course of his life, his soul was filled with ineffable sweetness and comfort. But what was the spring of this strong and abiding consolation? Not so much the consideration of the sure grounds he had to think that his state was good, that God had delivered him from hell, that heaven was his, or any thoughts concerning his own distinguished, happy, and exalted circumstances, as a high favorite of heaven, but the sweet meditations and entertaining views he had of divine things without himself, the affecting considerations and lively ideas of God's infinite glory, his unchangeable blessedness, his sovereignty and universal dominion, together with the sweet exercises of love to God, giving himself up to him, abasing himself before him, denying himself for him, depending upon him, acting for his glory, diligently serving him, and the pleasing prospects 
or hopes he had of a future advancement of the kingdom of Christ, etc. It appears plainly and abundantly all along, from his conversion to his death, that that beauty, that sort of good which was the great object of the new sense of his mind, the new relish and appetite given him in conversion, and thenceforward maintained and increased in his heart, was holiness, conformity to God, living to God, and glorifying him. This was what drew his heart. This was the center of his soul. This was the ocean to which all the streams of his religious affections tended. This was the object that engaged his eager, thirsting desires and earnest pursuits. He knew no true excellency or happiness but this. This was what he longed for most, vehemently and constantly, on earth. And this was with him the beauty and blessedness of heaven, which made him so much and so often to long for that world of glory. It was to be perfectly holy and perfectly exercised in the holy employments of heaven, thus to glorify God and enjoy him forever. His religious illuminations, affections, and comfort seemed to a great degree to be attended with evangelical humiliation, consisting in the sense of his own utter insufficiency, despicableness, and odiousness, with an answerable disposition and frame of heart. How deeply affected was he, almost continually, with his great defects in religion, with his vast distance from that spirituality and holy frame of mind that became him, with his ignorance, pride, deadness, unsteadiness, barrenness. He was not only affected with the remembrance of his former sinfulness before his conversion, but with the sense of his present vileness and pollution. He was not only disposed to think meanly of himself as before God and in comparison of him, but amongst men and as compared with them. He was apt to think other saints better than he, yea, to look on himself as the meanest and least of saints, yea, very often as the vilest and worst of mankind. And notwithstanding his great attainments in spiritual knowledge, yet we find there is scarce anything that he is more frequently affected and abased with a sense of than his ignorance. How eminently did he appear to be of a meek and quiet spirit, resembling the lamb-like, dove-like spirit of Jesus Christ. How full of love, meekness, quietness, forgiveness, and mercy. His love was not merely a fondness and zeal for a party, but an universal benevolence, very often exercised in the most sensible and ardent love to his greatest opposers and enemies. His love and meekness were not a mere pretense, an outward profession and show, but they were effectual things manifested in expansive and painful deeds of love and kindness, and in a meek behavior, readily confessing faults under the greatest trials, and humbling himself even at the feet of those from whom he supposed he had suffered most and from time to time very frequently praying for his enemies, abhorring the thought of bitterness and resentment towards them. I scarcely know where to look for any parallel instance of self-denial, in these respects and the present age. He was a person of great zeal, but how did he abhor a bitter zeal and lament it where he saw it? And though he was once drawn into some degrees of it, by the force of prevailing example, as it were in his childhood, Yet how did he go about with a heart bruised and broken in pieces for it all his life after? Of how soft and tender a spirit was he! How far were his experiences, hopes, and joys, from a tendency finally to stupefy and harden him, to lessen convictions and tenderness of conscience, to cause him to be less affected with present and past sins, and less conscientious with respect to future sins! more easy in the neglect of duties that are troublesome and inconvenient, more slow and partial in complying with difficult commands, less apt to be alarmed at the appearance of his own defects and transgressions, most easily induced to a compliance with carnal appetites. 
On the contrary, how tender was his conscience, how apt was his heart to smite him, how easily and greatly was he alarmed at the appearance of moral evil, how great and constant was his jealousy over his own heart, how strict his care and watchfulness against sin, how deep and sensible were the wounds that sin made in his conscience. Those evils that are generally accounted small were almost an insupportable burden to him, such as his inward deficiencies, his having no more love to God, finding within himself any slackness or dullness in religion, any unsteadiness or wandering frame of mind, etc. How did the consideration of such things as these oppress and abase him, and fill him with inward shame and confusion? His love and hope, though they were such as cast out a servile fear of hell, yet they were such as were attended with, and abundantly cherished and promoted, a reverential, filial fear of God, a dread of sin and of God's holy displeasure. His joy seemed truly to be a rejoicing with trembling. His assurance and comforts differed greatly from a false enthusiastic confidence and joy, in that it promoted and maintained mourning for sin. Holy mourning with him was not only the work of an hour or a day at his first conversion, but sorrow for sin was like a wound constantly running. He was a mourner for sin all his days. He did not, after he received comfort and full satisfaction of the forgiveness of all his sins and the safety of his state, forget his past sins, the sins of his youth that were committed before his conversion, but the remembrance of them from time to time revived in his heart with renewed grief. That in Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 63 was evidently fulfilled in him, that thou mayest remember and be confounded and never open thy mouth any more because of thy shame when I am pacified toward thee for all that thou hast done. And how lastingly did the sins that he committed after his conversion affect and break his heart? If he did anything whereby he thought he had in any respect dishonored God and wounded the interest of religion, he had never done with calling it to mind with sorrow and bitterness, though he was assured that God had forgiven it. Yet he never forgave himself. His past sorrows and fears made no satisfaction with him, but still the wound renews and bleeds afresh again and again. And his present sins that he daily found in himself were an occasion of daily sensible and deep sorrow of the heart. His religion did not consist in unaccountable flights and vehement pangs, suddenly rising and suddenly falling, at some turns exalted almost to the third heavens, and then at other turns negligent, vain, carnal, and swallowed up with the world for days and weeks, if not months, together. His religion was not like a blazing meteor or like a flaming comet or a wandering star, as the Apostle Jude calls it, verse 13, flying through the firmament with a bright train and then quickly going out in perfect darkness, but more like the steady lights of heaven that are constant principles of light, though sometimes hid with clouds, nor like a land flood which flows far and wide with a rapid stream bearing down all afore it and then dried up, but more like a stream fed by living springs, which though sometimes increased by showers and at other times diminished by drought, yet is a constant stream. His religious affections and joys were not like those of some who have rapture and mighty emotions from time to time in company, but have very little affection in retirement and secret places. Though he was of a very sociable temper and loved the company of saints and delighted very much in religious conversation and in social worship, yet his warmest affections and their greatest effects on animal nature and his sweetest joys were in his closet devotions and solitary transactions between God and his own soul as is very observable through his whole course, from his conversion to his death. He delighted greatly in sacred retirements and loved to get quite away from all the world to converse with God alone in secret duties. 
Mr. Brainerd's experiences and comforts were very far from being like those of some persons, which are attended with a spiritual satiety, and put an end to their religious desires and longings, at least to the edge and ardency of them, resting satisfied in their own attainments and comforts as having obtained their chief end, which is to extinguish their fears of hell and to give them confidence of the favor of God. How far were his religious affections, refreshments, and satisfactions from such an operation and influence as this? On the contrary, how were they always attended with longings and thirstings after greater degrees of conformity to God? And the greater and sweeter his comforts were, the more vehement were his desires after holiness. For it is to be observed that his longings were not so much after joyful discoveries of God's love and clear views of his title to future advancement and eternal honors heaven, as after more of present holiness, greater spirituality, and heart more engaged for God to love, exalt, and depend on him, an ability better to serve him, to do more for his glory, and to do all that he did with more of a regard to Christ as his righteousness and strength, and after the enlargement and advancement of Christ's kingdom in the earth. And his desires were not idle wishings and woodings, but such as were powerful and effectual, to animate him to the earnest, eager pursuit of these things, with utmost diligence and unfeigning labor and self-denial. His comforts never put an end to his seeking after God and striving to obtain his grace, but on the contrary, greatly engaged and enlarged him therein. His religion did not consist only in experience without practice. All his inward illuminations, affections, and comforts seem to have a direct tendency to practice and to issue in it, and this not merely a practice negatively good, free from gross acts of irreligion and immorality, but a practice positively holy and Christian, in a serious, devout, humble, meek, merciful, charitable, and beneficent conversation, making the service of God and our Lord Jesus Christ the great business of life, which he was devoted to and pursued with the greatest earnestness and diligence to the end of his days through all trials. In him was to be seen the right way of being lively in religion. His liveliness in religion did not consist merely or mainly in his being lively with the tongue, but indeed, not in being forward in profession and outward show, and abundant in declaring his own experiences, but chiefly in being active and abundant in the labors and duties of religion. Not slothful in business, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord and serving his generation according to the will of God. By these things, many high pretenders to religion and professors of extraordinary spiritual experience may be sensible that Mr. Brainerd did greatly condemn their kind of religion, and that not only in word, but by example, both living and dying, as a whole series of his Christian experience and practice, from his conversion to his death, appears a constant condemnation of it. It cannot be objected that the reason why he so much disliked the religion of these pretenders, and why his own so much differed from it, was that his experiences were not clear. There is no room to say they were otherwise, in any respect, in which clearness of experience has been wont to be insisted on, whether it be the clearness of their nature or of their order, and the method his soul was at first brought to rest and comfort in his conversion. I am far from thinking, and so is he, that clearness of the order of experiences is, in any measure, of equal importance with the clearness of their nature. I have sufficiently declared in my discourse on religious affections, which he expressly approved of and recommended, that I do not suppose a sensible distinctness of the steps of the Spirit's operation and method of successive convictions and illuminations is a necessary requisite to persons being received in full charity as true saints, 
provided the nature of the things they profess to be right and their practice agreeable. Nevertheless, it is observable, which cuts off all objection from such as would be most unreasonably disposed to object and cavil in the present case, so it was, that Mr. Brainerd's experiences were not only clear in the latter respect, but remarkably so in the former, so that there is not, perhaps, one instance in five hundred true converts that on this account can be paralleled with him. It cannot be pretended that the reason why he so much abhorred and condemned the notions and experiences of those whose first faith consists in believing that Christ is theirs, and that Christ died for them, without any previous experience of union of heart to him, for his excellency as he is in himself, and not for his supposed love to them, and who judge of their interest in Christ, their justification and God's love to them, not by their sanctification, and the exercises and fruits of grace, but by a supposed immediate witness of the Spirit by inward suggestion. I say, it cannot be pretended that the reason why he so much detested and condemned such opinions and experiences was that he was of a too legal spirit, either that he never was dead to the law, never experienced a thorough work of conviction, was never fully brought off from his own righteousness and weaned from the old covenant by a thorough legal humiliation, or that afterwards he had no great degree of evangelical humiliation, not living in a deep sense of his own emptiness, wretchedness, poverty, and absolute dependence on the mere grace of God through Christ. For his convictions of sin, preceding his first consolations in Christ, were exceedingly deep and thorough, his trouble and exercise of mind by a sense of sin and misery, very great and long continued, and the light let into his mind at his conversion and in progressive sanctification, appears to have had its genuine humbling influence upon him, to have kept him low in his own eyes, not confiding in himself but in Christ, living by the faith of the Son of God and looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus to eternal life. Nor can it be pretended that the reason why he condemned these and other things which this sort of people call the very height of vital religion and the power of godliness was that he was a dead Christian and lived in the dark, as they expressed themselves, that his experiences, though they might be true, were not great, that he did not live near to God, had but a small acquaintance with him, and had but a dim sight of spiritual things. If any, after they have read the preceding account of Mr. Brainerd's life, will venture to pretend thus, they will only show that they themselves are in the dark, and do indeed put darkness for light and light for darkness. This history of Mr. Brainerd may help us to make distinctions among the religious affections and remarkable impressions made on the minds of persons in a time of great awakening and revival of religion and may convince us that there are not only distinctions in theory invented to save the credit of pretended revivals of religion and what is called the experience of the operations of the spirit, but distinctions that do actually take place in the course of events and have a real and evident foundation in fact. Not only do the opposers of all religion, consisting in powerful operations and affections, thus confound things, but many of the pretenders to such religion do so. They that have been the subjects of some sort of vehement but vain operations on their mind, when they hear the relation of the experiences of some real and eminent Christians, they say their experiences are of the same sort, so they say they are just like the experiences of eminent Christians in former times, which we have printed accounts of. So I doubt not, but there are many deluded people, if they should read the preceding account of Mr. Brainerd's life, who reading without much understanding or careful observation would say, without hesitation, that some things which they have met with are of the very same kind with what he expresses, when the agreement is only in some general circumstances, 
or some particular things that are superficial and belonging as it were to the profession and outside of religion. But the inward temper of mind and the fruits in practice are as opposite and distant as east and west. Many honest good people also, and true Christians, do not very well know how to make a difference. The glittering appearance and glaring show of false religion dazzles their eyes, and they sometimes are so deluded by it that they look on some of these impressions, which hypocrites tell of, as the brightest experiences. And though they have experienced no such things themselves, they think it is because they are vastly lower in attainments and but babes in comparison of these flaming Christians. Yea, sometimes, from their differing so much from those who make so great a show, they doubt whether they have any grace at all. And it is a hard thing to bring many well-meaning people to make proper distinctions in this case, and especially to maintain and stand by them through a certain weakness they unhappily labor of, whereby they are liable to be overcome with the glare of outward appearance. Thus, if in a sedate hour they are by reasoning brought to allow such and such distinctions, yet the next time they come in the way of the great show of false religion, the dazzling appearance swallows them up and they are carried away. Thus the devil by his cunning artifices easily dazzles the feeble sight of men and puts them beyond a capacity of a proper exercise of consideration or hearkening to the dictates of calm thought and cool understanding. When they perceive the great affection, earnest talk, strong voice, assured looks, vast confidence, and bold assertions of these empty, assuming pretenders, they are overborne, lose the possession of their judgment, and say, Surely these men are in the right, God is with them of a truth. And so they are carried away, not with light and reason, but, like children, as it were, with a strong wind. This confounding all things together that have a fair show is but acting the part of a child that going into a shop where a variety of wares are exposed for sale, all of a shining appearance, some vessels of gold and silver and some diamonds and other precious stones and other things that are toys of little value, which are of some base metal gilt or glass polished and painted with curious colors or cut like diamonds, should esteem all alike and give as great a price for the vile as for the precious, or it is like the conduct of some unskillful, rash person who, finding himself deceived by some of the wares he had bought at that shop, should at once conclude all he there saw was of no value, and pursuant to such a conclusion, when afterwards he has true gold and diamonds offered him, enough to enrich him and enable him to live like a prince all his days, he should throw it all into the sea. But we must get into another way. The want of distinguishing in things that appertain to experimental religion is one of the chief miseries of the professing world. It is attended with very many most dismal consequences. Multitudes of souls are fatally deluded about themselves and their own state, and so are eternally undone. Hypocrites are confirmed in their delusions and exceedingly puffed up with pride. Many sincere Christians are dreadfully perplexed, darkened, tempted, and drawn aside from the way of duty and sometimes sadly tainted with false religion, to the great dishonor of Christianity, and hurt of their own souls. Some of the most dangerous and pernicious enemies of religion in the world, though they are called bright Christians, are encouraged and honored, who ought to be discountenanced and shunned by everybody, and prejudices are begotten and confirmed in vast multitudes against everything wherein the power and essence of godliness consists, and in the end deism and atheism are promoted." 
the foregoing account of Mr. Brainerd's life may afford matter of conviction that there is indeed such a thing as true experimental religion arising from immediate divine influences, supernaturally enlightening and convincing the mind, and powerfully impressing, quickening, sanctifying, and governing the heart, which religion is indeed an amiable thing, of happy tendency, and of no hurtful consequence to human society." notwithstanding there having been so many pretenses and appearances of what is called experimental vital religion that have proved to be nothing but vain pernicious enthusiasm if any insist that mr brainerd's religion was enthusiasm and nothing but a strange heat and blind fervor of mind arising from the strong fancies and dreams of a notional whimsical brain i would ask if it be so that such things as these are the fruits of enthusiasm viz a great degree of honesty and simplicity sincere and earnest desires and endeavors to know and do whatever is right and to avoid everything that is wrong and high degree of love to god delight in the perfections of his nature placing the happiness of life in him not only in contemplating him but in being active in pleasing and serving him a firm and undoubting belief in the messiah as the savior of the world the great prophet of god and king of god's church together with great love to him, delight and complacence in the way of salvation by him, and longing for the enlargement of his kingdom, earnest desires that God may be glorified and the Messiah's kingdom advanced, whatever instruments are made use of, uncommon resignation to the will of God and that under vast trials, great and universal benevolence to mankind, reaching all sorts of persons without distinction, manifested in sweetness of speech and behavior, kind treatment, mercy, liberality, and earnest seeking the good of the souls and bodies of men, attended with extraordinary humility, meekness, forgiveness of injuries, and love to enemies, and a great abhorrence of a contrary spirit and practice, not only as appearing in others, but wherein soever it had appeared in himself, causing the most bitter repentance and brokenness of heart on account of any past instances of such a conduct." a modest, discreet, and decent deportment among superiors, inferiors, and equals, a most diligent improvement of time, and earnest care to lose no part of it, great watchfulness against all sorts of sin, of heart, speech, and action. And this example and these endeavors attended with most happy fruits and blessed effects on others, in humanizing, civilizing, and wonderfully reforming and transforming some of the most brutish savages, idle, immoral, drunkards, murderers, gross idolaters, and wizards, bringing them to permanent sobriety, diligence, devotion, honesty, conscientiousness, and charity, and the foregoing amiable virtues and successful labors all ending at last in a marvelous peace, unmovable stability, calmness, and resignation in the sensible approaches of death, with longing for the heavenly state, not only for the honors and circumstantial advantages of it, but above all for the moral perfection and holy and blessed employments of it. And these things, in a person indisputably of good understanding and judgment, I say, if all these things are the fruits of enthusiasm, why should not enthusiasm be thought a desirable and excellent thing? For what can true religion, what can the best philosophy do more? If vapors and whimsy will bring men to the most thorough virtue, to the most benign and fruitful morality, and will maintain it through a course of life, attended with many trials, without affectation or self-exaltation, and with an honest, constant, bearing testimony against the wildness, the extravagances, the bitter zeal, assuming behavior, and separating spirit of enthusiasts, 
and will do all this the more effectually than anything else has ever done in any plain known instance that can be produced. If it be so, I say, what cause then has the world to prize and pray for this blessed whimsicalness and these benign sort of vapors? The preceding history serves to confirm those doctrines usually called the doctrines of grace. For if it be allowed that there is truth, substance, or value in the main of Mr. Brainerd's religion, it will undoubtedly follow that those doctrines are divine, since it is evident that the whole of it, from beginning to end, is according to that scheme of things, all built on those apprehensions, notions, and views that are produced and established in the mind by those doctrines. He was brought, by doctrines of this kind, to his awakening, and deep concern about things of a spiritual and eternal nature— and by these doctrines his convictions were maintained and carried on, and his conversion was evidently altogether agreeable to this scheme, but by no means agreeing with the contrary, and utterly inconsistent with the Arminian notion of conversion or repentance. His conversion was plainly founded in a clear, strong conviction, and undoubting persuasion of the truth of those things appertaining to these doctrines, which Arminians most object against, and which his own mind had contended most about. And his conversion was so confirming and perfecting of moral principles and habits by use and practice, and his own labor in an industrious disciplining himself, together with the concurring suggestions and conspiring aids of God's spirit, but entirely a supernatural work, at once turning him from darkness to marvelous light, from the power of sin to the dominion of divine and holy principles, an effect in no regard produced by his strength or labor, or obtained by his virtue, and not accomplished till he was first brought to a full conviction, that all his own virtue, strengths, labors, and endeavors could never avail anything to the producing or procuring this effect. A very little while before, his mind was full of the same cavils against the doctrines of God's sovereign grace, which are made by Arminians, and his heart even full of a raging opposition to them. And God was pleased to perform this good work in him just after a full end had been put to this caviling and opposition, after he was entirely convinced that he was dead in sin and was in the hands of God as the absolute sovereign, unobliged, sole disposer, and author of true holiness. God's showing him mercy at such a time is a confirmation that this was a preparation for mercy, and consequently that these things which he was convinced of were true. While he opposed these things, he was the subject of no such mercy, though he so earnestly sought it and prayed for it with so much painfulness, care, and strictness in religion. But when once his opposition is fully subdued, and he is brought to submit to the truths which he before had opposed with full conviction, then the mercy he sought for is granted with abundant light, great evidence, and exceeding joy, and he reaps the sweet fruit of it all his life after, and in the valley of the shadow of death. In his conversion he was brought to see the glory of that way of salvation by Christ that is taught in what are called the doctrines of grace, and thenceforward with unspeakable joy and complacence to embrace and acquiesce in that way of salvation. He was in his conversation in all respects brought to those views and that state of mind which these doctrines show to be necessary. And if his conversion was any real conversion, or anything besides a mere whim, and if the religion of his life was anything else but a series of freaks of whimsical mind, then this one grand principle, on which depends the whole difference between Calvinists and Arminians, is undeniable, viz. that the grace or virtue of truly great men not only differs from the virtue of others in degree, but even in nature and kind. 
If ever Mr. Brainerd was truly turned from sin to God at all, or ever became truly religious, none can reasonably doubt but that his conversion was at the time when he supposed it to be. The change he then experienced was evidently the greatest moral change that ever he passed under, and he was then apparently first brought to that kind of religion, that remarkably new habit and temper of mind which he held all his life after. The narration shows it to be different in nature and kind from all that he ever was the subject of before. It was evidently wrought at once without fitting and preparing his mind, by gradually convincing it more and more of the same truths, and bringing it nearer and nearer to such a temper. For it was soon after his mind had been remarkably full of blasphemy, and a vehement exercise of sensible enmity against God, and great opposition to those truths, which he was now brought with his whole soul to embrace and rest in as divine and glorious, and to place his happiness in the contemplation and improvement of. And he himself, who was surely best able to judge, declares that the dispositions and affections which were then given him, and thenceforward maintained in him, were most sensibly and certainly perfectly different in their nature from all that ever he was the subject of before, or that he had ever any conception of. This he ever stood to, and was preemptory in, as what he certainly knew, even to his death. He must be looked upon as capable of judging. He had opportunity to know. He had practiced a great deal of religion before, was exceedingly strict and conscientious, and had continued so for a long time, had various religious affections, with which he often flattered himself, and sometimes pleased himself as being now in a good estate. And after he had those new experiences that began in his conversion, they were continued to the end of his life, long enough for him thoroughly to observe their nature and compare them with what had been before. Doubtless he was compos mentis, and was at least one of so good an understanding and judgment as to be pretty well capable of discerning and comparing the things that passed in his own mind. It is further observable that his religion all along operated in such a manner as tended to confirm his mind in the doctrines of God's absolute sovereignty, man's universal and entire dependence on God's power and grace, etc. The more his religion prevailed in his heart, and the fuller he was of divine love and of clear and delightful views of spiritual things, and the more his heart was engaged in God's service, the more sensible he was of the certainty and excellency and importance of these truths, and the more he was affected with them and rejoiced in them. And he declares particularly that when he lay for a long while on the verge of the eternal world, often expecting to be in that world in a few minutes, yet at the same time enjoying great serenity of mind and clearness of thought, and being most apparently in a peculiar manner at a distance from an enthusiastical frame, he, at that time, saw clearly the truth of those great doctrines of the gospel, which are just styled the doctrines of grace, and never felt himself so capable of demonstrating the truth of them. So that it was very evident Mr. Brainerd's religion was wholly correspondent to what is called the Calvinistical scheme, and was the effect of those doctrines applied to his heart, and certainly it cannot be denied that the effect was good, unless we turn atheists or deists. I would ask whether there be any such things in reality as Christian devotion. If there be, what is it? What is its nature, and what its just measure? Should it not be in a great degree? We read abundantly in scripture of loving God with all the heart, with all the soul, with all the mind, and with all the strength, of delighting in God, of rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory, the souls magnifying the Lord, thirsting for God, 
hungering and thirsting after righteousness, the soul's breaking for the longing it hath to God's judgments, praying to God with groanings that cannot be uttered, mourning for sin with a broken heart and contrite spirit, etc. How full is the book of Psalms and other parts of Scripture of such things as these? Now wherein do these things as expressed by and appearing in Mr. Brainerd, either the things themselves or their effects and fruits, differ from the Scripture representations? These things he was brought to by that strange and wonderful transformation of the man, which he called his conversion. And does not this well agree with what is so often said in the Old Testament and New, concerning the giving of a new heart, creating a right spirit, a being renewed in the spirit of the mind, a being sanctified throughout, becoming a new creature, etc.? Now where is there to be found an Arminian conversion or repentance, consisting in so great and admirable a change? Can the Arminians produce an instance within this age and so plainly within our reach and view of such a reformation, such a transformation of a man to scriptural devotion, heavenly mindedness, and true Christian morality in one that before lived without these things on the foot of their principles and through the influence of their doctrines? And here is worthy to be considered not only the effect of Calvinistical doctrines, as they are called, on Mr. Brainerd himself, but also the effect of the same doctrines as taught and inculcated by him on others. It is abundantly pretended and asserted of late that these doctrines tend to undermine the very foundations of all religion and morality, and to enervate and vacate all reasonable motives to the exercise and practice of them, and lay invincible stumbling blocks before infidels to hinder their embracing Christianity, and that the contrary doctrines are the fruitful principles of virtue and goodness, set religion on its right basis, represent it in an amiable light, give its motives their full force, and recommend it to the reason and common sense of mankind. But where can they find an instance of so great and signal an effect of their doctrines in bringing infidels who were at such a distance from all that is civil, human, sober, rational, and Christian, and so full of inveterate prejudices against these things, to such a degree of humanity, civility, exercise of reason, self-denial, and Christian virtue. Arminians place religion in morality. Let them bring an instance of their doctrines producing such a transformation of a people in point of morality. It is strange, if the all-wise God so orders things in his providence, that reasonable and proper means, and his own means, which he himself has appointed, should in no known remarkable instance be instrumental to produce so good an effect an effect so agreeable to his own word and mind, and that very effect for which he appointed these excellent means, that they should not be so successful as those means which are not his own but very contrary to them, and of a contrary tendency, means that are in themselves very absurd and tend to root all religion and virtue out of the world, to promote and establish infidelity, and to lay an insuperable stumbling block before pagans, to hinder their embracing the gospel." I say, if this be the true state of the case, it is certainly wonderful, and an event worthy of some attention. Is there not much in the preceding memoirs of Mr. Brainerd to teach and excite to duty us who are called to the work of the ministry, and all that are candidates for that great work? What a deep sense did he seem to have of the greatness and importance of that work, and with what weight did it lie on his mind? How sensible was he of his own insufficiency for this work, and how great was his dependence on God's sufficiency. How solicitous that he might be fitted for it, and to this end, how much time did he spend in prayer and fasting, as well as reading and meditation, giving himself to these things. 
How did he dedicate his whole life, all his powers and talents to God, and forsake and renounce the world, with all its pleasing and ensnaring enjoyments, that he might be wholly at liberty to serve Christ in this work, and to please him who had chosen him to be a soldier under the captain of our salvation? With what solicitude, solemnity, and diligence did he devote himself to God our Savior, and seek his presence and blessing in secret at the time of his ordination? And how did his whole heart appear to be constantly engaged, his whole time employed, and his whole strength spent in the business he then solemnly undertook and was publicly set apart to? And his history shows us the right way to success in the work of the ministry. He sought it as a resolute soldier seeks a victory in a siege or battle, or as a man that runs a race for a great prize. Animated with love to Christ and souls, how did he labor always fervently, not only in word and doctrine, in public and private, but in prayers day and night, wrestling with God in secret and travailing in birth with unutterable groans and agonies, until Christ were formed in the hearts of the people to whom he was sent? How did he thirst for a blessing on his ministry and watch for souls as one that must give an account? How did he go forth in the strength of the Lord God? seeking and depending on a special influence of the Spirit to assist and succeed him. And what was the happy fruit at last, though after long waitings and many dark and discouraging appearances? Like a true son of Jacob, he persevered in wrestling through all the darkness of the night until the breaking of the day. And his example of laboring, praying, denying himself, and enduring hardness with unfeigning resolution and patience, and his faithful, vigilant, and prudent conduct in many other respects, which it would be too long now particularly to recite, may afford instruction to missionaries in particular. There is much in the preceding account to excite and encourage God's people to earnest prayers and endeavors for the advancement and enlargement of the kingdom of Christ in the world. Mr. Brainerd set us an excellent example in this respect. He sought the prosperity of Zion with all his might. He preferred Jerusalem above his chief joy. How did his soul long for it and pant after it, and how earnestly and often did he wrestle with God for it, and how far did he, in these desires and prayers, seem to be carried beyond all private and selfish views, being animated by a pure love to Christ, an earnest desire of his glory, and a disinterested affection to the souls of mankind. The consideration of this not only ought to be an incitement to the people of God, but may also be a just encouragement to them to be much in seeking and praying for a general outpouring of the Spirit of God and extensive revival of religion. I confess that God's giving so much of a spirit of prayer for this mercy to so eminent a servant of his and exciting him in so extraordinary a manner and with such vehement thirstings of soul to agonize in prayer for it from time to time through the course of his life is one thing among others which gives me great hope that God has the design of accomplishing something very glorious for the interest of his church before long. One such instance as this, I conceive, gives more encouragement than the common, cold, formal prayers of thousands. As Mr. Brainerd's desires and prayers for the coming of Christ's kingdom were very special and extraordinary, so I think we may reasonably hope that the God who excited those desires and prayers will answer them with something special and extraordinary. And in a particular manner, do I think it worthy to be taken notice of for our encouragement that he had his heart, as he declared, unusually and beyond what had been before, drawn out in longings and prayers for the flourishing of Christ's kingdom on earth when he was in the approaches of death, and that with his dying breath he did as it were breathe out his departing soul into the bosom of his Redeemer, 
in prayers and pantings after this glorious event, expiring in a very great hope that it would soon begin to be fulfilled. And I wish that the thoughts which he in his dying state expressed of that explicit agreement and visible union of God's people and extraordinary prayer for a general revival of religion, lately proposed in a memorial from Scotland, which has been dispersed among us, may be well considered by those that hitherto have not seen fit to fall in with that proposal. But I forbear to say any more on this head, having already largely published my thoughts upon it, in a discourse written on purpose to promote that affair, which I confess I wish that every one of my readers might be supplied with, not that my honor, but that this excellent design might be promoted. One more thing may not be unprofitably observed in the preceding account of Mr. Brainerd, and that is the special and remarkable disposal of divine providence with regard to the circumstances of his last sickness and death. Though he had long been infirm, his constitution being much broken by his fatigues and hardships, and though he was often brought very low by illness, before he left Conomique and also while he lived at the Forks of Delaware, yet his life was preserved till he had seen that which he had so long and greatly desired and sought, a glorious work of grace among the Indians, and had received the wish for blessing of God on his labors. Though, as it were, in deaths oft, yet he lived to behold the happy fruits of the long-continued travail of his soul and labor of his body, in the wonderful conversion of many of the heathen, and the happy effect of it in the great change of their conversation with many circumstances which afford a fair prospect of the continuance of God's blessing upon them, as may appear by what I shall presently further observe. Thus he did not depart till his eyes had seen God's salvation. Though it was the pleasure of God that he should be taken off from his labors among that people whom God had made him a spiritual father to, who were so dear to him, and whose spiritual welfare he was so greatly concerned for, yet this was not before they were well initiated and instructed in the Christian religion, thoroughly weaned from their old heathenish and brutish notions and practices, and all their prejudices, which tended to keep their minds unsettled, were fully removed, and they were confirmed and fixed in the Christian faith and manners, were formed into a church, had ecclesiastical ordinances and discipline introduced and settled, were brought into a good way with respect to the education of children, had a schoolmaster sent to them in Providence, excellently qualified for the business, and had a school set up and established in good order among them, had been well brought off from their former idle, strolling, sottish way of living, had removed from their former scattered, uncertain habitations, and were collected in a town by themselves on a good piece of land of their own, were introduced into the way of living by husbandry, and begun to experience the benefits of it. These things were but just brought to pass by his indefatigable application and care, and then he was taken off from his work by illness. If this had been but a little sooner, they would not have been so well prepared for such a dispensation, and it probably would have been unspeakably more to the hurt of their spiritual interest and of the cause of Christianity among them. The time and circumstances of his illness were so ordered that he had just opportunity to finish his journal and prepare it for the press, giving an account of the marvelous display of divine power and grace among the Indians in New Jersey and at the Forks of Delaware, his doing which was a thing of great consequence, and therefore urged upon him by the correspondents who have honored his journal with a preface. The world being particularly and justly informed of that affair by Mr. Brainerd before his death, a foundation was hereby laid for a concern in others for that cause, and proper care and measures to be taken for maintaining it after his death. As it has actually proved to be of great influence and benefit in this respect, 
it having excited and engaged many in those parts and also more distant parts of America to exert themselves for the upholding and promoting so good and glorious a work, remarkably opening their hearts and hands to that end, and not only in America but in Great Britain, where that journal, which is the same that I have earnestly recommended to my readers to possess themselves of, has been an occasion of some large benefactions made for the promoting the interest of Christianity among the Indians. If Mr. Brainerd had been taken ill but a little sooner, he had not been able to complete this, his journal and prepare a copy for the press. He was not taken off from the work of the ministry among his people to his brother was in a capacity and circumstances to succeed him in his care of them, who succeeds him in the like spirit, and under whose prudent and faithful care his congregation has flourished and been very happy since he left them, and probably could not have been so well provided for otherwise. If Mr. Brainerd had been disabled sooner, his brother would by no means have been ready to stand up in his place, having taken his first degree at college, but about that very time that he was seized with his fatal consumption. Though in that winter that he lay sick at Mr. Dickinson's in Elizabethtown, he continued for a long time in an extremely low state, so that his life was almost despaired of, and his state was sometimes such that it was hardly expected he would live a day to an end, yet his life was spared a while longer. He lived to see his brother arrived in New Jersey, being come to succeed him in the care of his Indians, and he himself had opportunity to assist in his examination and introduction into his business, and to commit the conduct of his dear people to one whom he well knew and could put confidence in, and use freedom within giving him particular instructions and charges, and under whose care he could leave his congregation with great cheerfulness. The providence of God was remarkable in so ordering of it, that before his death he should take a journey into New England and go to Boston, which was in many respects of very great and happy consequence to the interest of religion, and especially among his own people. By this means, as has been observed, he was brought into acquaintance with many persons of note and influence, ministers and others, belonging both to town and various parts of the country, and had opportunity, under the best advantages, to bear a testimony for God and true religion, and against those false appearances of it that have proved most pernicious to the interest of Christ's kingdom in the land. And the providence of God is particularly observable in this circumstance of the testimony he there bore for true religion, viz., that he was there brought so near the grave, and continued for so long a time on the very brink of eternity, and from time to time looked on himself and was looked on by others as just leaving the world, and that in these circumstances he should be so particularly directed and assisted in his thoughts and views of religion to distinguish between the true and false with such clearness and evidence, and that after this he should be unexpectedly and surprisingly restored and strengthened, so far as to be able to converse freely and have such opportunity and special occasions to declare the sentiments he had in these which were, to human apprehension, his dying circumstances, and to bear his testimony concerning the nature of true religion and concerning the mischievous tendency of its most prevalent counterfeits and false appearances, as things he had a special, clear, distinct view of at that time, when he expected in a few minutes to be in eternity, and the certainty and importance of which were then, in a peculiar manner, impressed on his mind. Among the happy consequences of his going to Boston were those liberal benefactions that have been mentioned, which were made by piously disposed persons for maintaining and promoting the interest of religion among his people, and also the meeting of a number of gentlemen in Boston, of note and ability, to consult upon measures for that purpose, 
who were excited by their acquaintance and conversations with Mr. Brainerd, and by the account of the great things God had wrought by his ministry, to unite themselves, that by their joint endeavors and contributions they might promote the kingdom of Christ and the spiritual good of their fellow creatures among the Indians in New Jersey and elsewhere. It was also remarkable that Mr. Brainerd should go to Boston at that time, after the honorable commissioners there of the corporation in London, for propagating the gospel of New England and parts adjacent, had received Dr. Williams's legacy for the maintaining of two missionaries among the heathen, and at a time when they, having concluded on a mission to the Indians of the Six Nations, so-called, were looking out for fit persons to be employed in that important service. This proved an occasion of their committing to him the affair of finding and recommending suitable persons, which has proved a successful means of two persons being found and actually appointed to that business, who seem to be well qualified for it and to have their hearts greatly engaged in it, one of which has been solemnly ordained to that work in Boston and is now gone forth to one of those tribes who have appeared well disposed to his reception, it being judged not convenient for the other to go till the next spring by reason of his bodily infirmity. These happy consequences of Mr. Brainerd's journey to Boston would have been prevented in case he had died when he was brought so near to death in New Jersey, or if after he came first to Northampton, where he was very much at a loss, and long deliberating which way to bend his course, he had determined not to go to Boston. The providence of God was observable in his going to Boston at a time when not only the honorable commissioners were seeking missionaries to the six nations, but just after his journal, which gives an account of his labors and success among the Indians, had been received and spread in Boston, whereby his name was known, and the minds of serious people were well prepared to receive his person, and the testimony he there gave for God to exert themselves for the upholding and promoting the interest of religion in his congregation and amongst the Indians elsewhere and to regard his judgment concerning the qualifications of missionaries, etc. If he had gone there the fall before, when he had intended to have made his journey into New England, but was prevented by a sudden great increase of his illness, it would not have been likely to have been in any measure to so good effect, and also if it he had not been unexpectedly detained in Boston, for when he went from my house he intended to make but a very short stay there, but divine providence, by his being brought so low there, detained him long, thereby to make way for the fulfilling its own gracious designs. The providence of God was remarkable in so ordering that although he was brought so very near the grave in Boston, that it was not in the least expected he would ever come alive out of his chamber, yet he wonderfully revived and was preserved several months longer, so that he had opportunity to see and fully converse with both his younger brethren before he died, which was a thing he greatly desired and especially to see his brother John, with whom was left the care of his congregation, that he might by him be fully informed of their state, and might leave with him such instructions and directions as were requisite in order to their spiritual welfare, and to send them his dying charges and counsels. And he had also opportunity, by means of this suspension of his death, to find and recommend a couple of persons fit to be employed as missionaries to the six nations, as had been desired of him. Thus, although it was the pleasure of a sovereign God that he should be taken away from his congregation, the people that he had begotten through the gospel, who were so dear to him, yet it was granted to him that before he died he should see them well provided for every way. He saw them provided for with one to instruct them and to take care of their souls, his own brother whom he could confide in, those things that before were wanting in order to it being supplied. And he had the prospect of a charitable society being established, 
of able and well-disposed persons who seemed to make the spiritual interest of his congregation their own, whereby he had a comfortable view of their being well provided for for the future, and he had also opportunity to leave all his dying charges with his successor in the pastoral care of his people, and by him to send his dying counsels to them. Thus God granted him to see all things happily settled, or in a hopeful way of being so, before his death with respect to his dear people. And whereas not only his own congregation, but the souls of the Indians in North America in general, were very dear to him, and he had greatly set his heart on the propagating and extending the kingdom of Christ among them, God was pleased to grant to him, however it was his will, that he should be taken away, and so should not be the immediate instrument of their instruction and conversion, yet that before his death he should see unexpected extraordinary provision made for this also. And it is remarkable that God not only allowed him to see such provision made for the maintaining the interest of religion among his own people and the propagation of it elsewhere, but honored him by making him the means or occasion of it. So that it is very probable, however, Mr. Brainerd during the last four months of his life was extraordinarily in an extremely weak and low state, very often scarcely able to speak, yet that he was made the instrument or means of much more good in that space of time than he would have been if he had been well and in full strength of body. Thus God's power was manifested in his weakness, and the life of Christ was manifested in his mortal flesh. Another thing, wherein appears the merciful disposal of providence with respect to his death, was that he did not die in the wilderness, among the savages at Conomique, or the Forks of Delaware, or at Susquehanna, but in a place where his dying behavior and speeches might be observed and remembered, and some accounts given of them for the benefit of survivors, and also where care might be taken of him in his sickness, and proper honors done him at his death. If these circumstances of Mr. Brainerd's death be duly considered, I doubt not, but they will be acknowledged as a notable instance of God's fatherly care and covenant faithfulness towards them that are devoted to him, and faithfully serve him while they live, whereby he never fails nor forsakes them, but is with them living and dying, so that whether they live, they live to the Lord, or whether they die, they die to the Lord and both in the life and death they are owned and taken care of as his. Mr. Brainerd himself, as was before observed, was much in taking notice, when near his end, of the merciful circumstances of his death, and said from time to time that God had granted him all his desire. End of the Appendix End of the Life of David Brainerd by John Stiles Read by Kristen Hand